Welcome to the Truth Hurts Program. I'm Steve Z. Let's get right to it. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome back to the Truth Hurts Program for May 10th, Monday, 2021. We are on a roll, boys and girls. Thought I'd try my hand at some lousy poetry. For Democrats and liberals, all is never well. For many of them are ancient, and old age is hell. They act as indestructible. Tax thirst they can't quell. But they're not aging gracefully. Yes, old age is hell. They all should be in prison, rotting in a cell. But they live long and they prosper. But old age is hell. In office, sometimes for decades, living in protected shells. They're old and they're decrepit. And old age is hell. They rot there in their offices. Their decay you can smell. But they can't live forever. Because old age is hell. Insider trading is where they buy and sell. It's illegal for you and me, but for them, old age is hell. They're barely alive in there. It's really hard to tell. For Democrats in Congress, old age is hell. They mumble, stumble, fumble. Some have even fell. Like good old gropey Joe Biden, old age is hell. Taxing and spending, they're draining the well, seem to drag on forever, but old age is hell. They're comb-overs on their heads, plastered in some type of gel. The wind can't blow the hair out of place, but old age is hell. They know what's best for me and you, and that's what they will yell, but they cannot possibly live forever. For old age is hell. Okay, it's pretty lousy, but I threw it together there in a few moments' notice. In March of 1950, an Illinois congressman named Ralph Church suddenly slumped over in his seat while testifying before a House committee. His colleagues rushed to check on him and administer aid, but he was pronounced dead of a heart attack at age 66. Now, he was neither the first nor the last member of Congress to die in office. Jane Campbell is the president of the U.S. Capitol Historical Society, and Jane says if you look back in history, nearly one in ten members of Congress have died while in office. That history has some Democrats quite concerned that illness or death could likely derail President Sleepy, Creepy, Mopey Dopey, Little Girl Gropey Joe Biden's efforts to pass his ambitious bills through Congress which his party controls by the slimmest margin in many, many decades. It only takes one to die right now and have a governor appoint another, as far as the Senate is concerned, or to call a special election in which a Republican could win a Senate seat. And all of Gropey Joe and Camel Toe's ambitious socialist plans could be tossed out the window. The ability to make good on Biden's agenda is pretty much dangling by a thread, said a former aide to Chuckles the Clown Schumer, the majority leader. Brian Fallon said, I don't think it's uncouth to talk about it. I think it's a reality that has to inform the urgency with which we approach those issues. 
More than 1160 sitting members and members-elect have died from accidents, from disease, and from violence since the first time Congress met in 1789. This according to a New York Times analysis of House and Senate records. They include multiple House speakers, famed senators, and even two former presidents who returned to Congress after leaving the White House. The pandemic and the January 6th Capitol uprising fueled fears that this Congress might be particularly vulnerable to deaths. Of course, not a single member of Congress was threatened in the slightest during those mostly peaceful protests at the Capitol on January 6th. But with most members vaccinated and security tightened, old age now appears to be the biggest threat to Congress and the Democrat majority. The average age of a sitting senator right now is 64. The average age of a House of Representatives member is 58, making this particular Congress one of the oldest in history. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel is a professor of medical ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania. And he said, heart disease and cancer are really the two most common causes of mortality. And they are both things that increase with age. On average, 10 lawmakers have died in each two-year Congress. Seven House members and three senators on average. Deaths peaked in the 1940s, but they've slowed in recent decades. But every Congress except two has lost at least one member. This particular term in the House of Representatives have already seen two deaths affecting the party's close margins. Three members, Ron Wright of Texas, Representative-elect Luke Letlow of Louisiana, both Republicans, and Democrat Alcee Hastings of Florida have died. That's the most in Congress in the first three months since the early 1980s. Wright and Letlow died from complications of COVID-19, but not COVID-19 itself. Health problems have also dogged the Senate. Patrick Leakey Leahy is age 81. He's a Democrat from Vermont. He was briefly hospitalized back in January. Tom Tillis is a 60-year-old North Carolina Republican who just underwent cancer treatment. Questions have been raised recently about 87-year-old Diane Feinstein, a Democrat who's represented California since way, way back in 1992. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders had a heart attack in 2019, and he is 79 years old. In the most extreme case, deaths could actually end the Democrats' ability to pass legislation without any Republican support or even flip control of either chamber. There's a more likely opportunity for Republicans to take over the Senate since it's evenly matched 50-50. For in the evenly divided Senate, where a single Democratic vacancy could hand Republicans committee gavels as well as the power to schedule votes until a Democrat successor was elected or appointed, this could be an opportunity. A serious illness could also upset the party's delicate legislative arithmetic. Fallon is now the executive director of Demand Justice, a progressive liberal leftist advocacy group focused on the federal judiciary. He said, Schumer needs all 50 votes. If someone is laid up or hospitalized for a long period of time and their vote is not there, then having the majority is somewhat meaningless. It's also possible that a special election or a governor's appointment could shift Senate control more lastingly. 
Several states require governors to fill vacancies with a temporary replacement of the same political party as the departed senator. But nine senators in the Democratic caucus represent states with Republican governors who can appoint anyone they choose. That could let a Republican governor name a Republican replacement, giving Republicans the Senate majority, even though it might only be temporary. Six Republican senators represent states with Democrat governors who have similar authority. House vacancies are filled by special election and relatively few seats are competitive, lowering the chances that deaths would alter partisan control. No special election to Congress so far this year has managed to flip a single seat. But special elections do take time to organize. Delays could further shrink Democrats' single-digit margin of error. Though House control has never changed in the middle of a session. Republicans could push to elect a new speaker and even take over committees if vacancies force Democrats below a majority of seats. There's so much at stake for Democrats in losing control of one or both chambers in the middle of this current Congress. When they brand new president with an ambitious progressive leftist socialist liberal agenda is in the balance, one could only hope. The loss of unified control of the Democrat Party could hang in the balance and be devastating for the shift to socialism. We can only hope. Of course, deaths or illnesses could accrue to Democrats' political benefits as well. The early retirement of ailing Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia back in 2019 left his seat wide open. Kelly Loeffler was appointed to it and lost to Raphael Warnock in January helping give the Democrats their current majorities. Deaths have altered the balance of power and changed American history before. You may recall back in 2009 the death of Senator Ted Kennedy from brain cancer and Scott Brown's upset victory to fill Kennedy's seat ended up costing the Democrats their filibuster-proof majority. That forced the House of Representatives to abandon its more progressive, liberal, socialist, leftist version of the Affordable Care Act and passed the much stingier bill that had cleared the Senate. John Cohen recounts the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare disaster, in a new book he wrote. He says, losing Kennedy's seat forced Democrats to settle for a bill that had even more compromises than they had hoped for. Kennedy's death may have also indirectly empowered legal threats to Obamacare's very survival. The Senate version was hastily written and lack so-called severability clauses, which protect laws from being overturned entirely if parts of them are ruled unconstitutional. That omission is now the reason a pending Supreme Court case could invalidate the entire Obamacare debacle. Again, one could only hope. The entire law is at risk because there is no severability clause, which might have been slid in there in the House of Representatives version had Ted Kennedy not croaked. Of course, past is not necessarily a predictor of the future. Congressional deaths have declined sharply over the last several decades amid medical advances, longer lifespans, and members of our Congress are not representative examples of the population they represent. Statistics are averages, but we're dealing with individuals. Lawmakers tend to be well-off financially, well-educated, and those predictors for longer life expectancy than average can possibly be traced to their privilege.
Some of them appear to recognize the potential for deaths to help or hinder Democrats. Think about Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky. He's 79 years old. He recently got the Kentucky legislature to change the state's appointment rules, requiring the state's Democratic governor to fill vacancies with a member of the departing senator's party. Nice move, Mitch. Still, recent history, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death in September and the pandemic devastation, suggests that mortality can unexpectedly shape political outcomes. For today's Democrats, moving too quickly may be the surest way to prepare for the unthinkable. And that's where they screw up most of the time, moving things too quickly without thought processes. We have a once-in-a-generation window to enact major reforms, Fallon said. We may not have a full two years in which to pace ourselves. I'm not hoping for anyone to die, but it's one of those things. If anybody is going to, if the number has to be pulled, please let it be on the Democrat side. This country cannot afford what will happen if the progressive, liberal, leftist, socialist, communist agenda moves forward as the Democrats are so ambitiously planning. We'll be right back. I'm an adult now. I can do what I want. Pauline Rojas is a high school student in San Antonio, Texas. But like many of her classmates, she has not returned to class. And she has little interest in doing so. During the Wuhan China novel coronavirus pandemic of 2019, Ms. Rojas started working a 20 to 40 hour a week job at Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers restaurants. She's been using that money to help pay her family's internet bill, to buy clothing for herself, and to save money for a car. Ms. Rojas is 18 years old. She is no doubt that a year of online schooling squeezed in between her work shifts that end at midnight has affected her learning. However, she has embraced her new role as part of the breadwinners of her family. She shares responsibility with her mother who works at a hardware store. She said, I wanted to take the stress off my mom. I'm no longer a kid. I'm capable of having a job, holding a job, and making my own money. Only a small percentage of United States schools remain fully closed. 12% of elementary, 12% of middle schools, according to a federal uh, survey and a very small number of high schools. The percentage of students learning remotely is much higher now. More than one-third of fourth and eighth graders and an even larger group of high school students are currently remote learning. According to the New York Times, a majority of 13% AA hyphenated American Blafrican students and Hispanic and Asian American students are remaining out of traditional school. Now, before I go on with this article, you know where it's headed. Because they had to mention that a majority of black, Hispanic, and Asian students remain out of school, there must be some evil, planned-by-design racist component, right? Let's find out. The disparities have put district leaders and policymakers in a tough position as they end this school year and plan for next school year. Even though the pandemic appears to be coming somewhat under control in the U.S. as vaccinations roll out, many school superintendents say fear of the coronavirus itself is no longer the primary reason their students are opting out of school. 
nor are many families expressing a strong preference for remote learning. Rather, for every child and parent who has leaped at the opportunity to return to the classroom, there are just as many others who changed their lives over the past year in ways that make going back to actual school quite difficult. The consequences will likely reverberate through the education system for years, especially if states and districts continue to give students any choice whatsoever to attend online or remote learning. Teenagers from low-income families have taken on heavy loads of paid work. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. How can you sit there and lie? They're all home enjoying the fruits of government handouts. Go back to the article. Parents made new childcare arrangements to get through the long months of school closures and part-time hours are now loath to disrupt their established routines. Some families do not know that public schools have even reopened because of language barriers or lack of effective communication from districts. Stop. Once again, please stop. You mean to tell me when little Hispanic Maria looks out the door and sees all of the school children getting on the school bus. They don't realize that those students are going back to school. Someone has to tell them that school is back in session in Spanish. If that's the case, they need to move to a country where Spanish is the main language. That is the most ridiculous thing I've heard all day. But don't worry, folks. The day is still young and the ridiculous piles and piles and piles on as things go by. Experts have coined the term school hesitancy to describe the remarkably durable resistance to a return to traditional learning. Some wonder whether the pandemic has simply upended people's choices about how they choose to live with the location of schooling, like the location of office work, which is now up for grabs. Others see the phenomenon as a social and educational crisis for cheering that must be combated, a challenge akin to vaccine hesitancy. Pedro Martinez, the San Antonio school superintendent, said it was most challenging to draw teenagers back to classrooms in his overwhelmingly Hispanic low-income district. He said, there are so many stories and they are all stories that break your heart. He said that half of high school students are eligible to return to school five days a week, but only 30% have opted in. Concerned about flagging grades and the risk of students dropping out, he plans to greatly restrict access to remote learning next school year. He said, I don't want to keep opening up this Pandora's box. In March, according to statistics, half of black and Hispanic children's and two-thirds of Asian-American children were enrolled in remote learning, compared with only 20% of white students, according to the latest federal data. While most district leaders and policymakers believe that the classroom is the best place for children and teenagers to learn, many are hesitant to apply pressure to families who have lived through a traumatic year. <laughs> An added Complication is continued opposition to full-time in-person learning from some teachers and district officials and, of course, those unions, because those unions are arguing that widespread vaccination of educators and teenagers does not eliminate the need for physical distancing. 
The CDC continues to advise three to six feet of distancing in schools. Ridiculous. In that context, students who opt out create the space necessary to serve students who prefer to be there in person. At the same time, remote learning is a staffing challenge for some districts. San Antonio, for example, there is a common practice for teachers to instruct remote and in-person students at the same time through a live video stream from the classroom to those students at home and to those in the classroom right there live and direct. In other school systems, like that of New York City, unions have resisted having teachers do both at once, making it difficult to fully staff all of the classroom needs. And in New York and several other cities where many teachers have received medical accommodations to work from home, some students inside of the classrooms have been asked to log in to remote learning platforms so they could interact with teachers in other locations, which lead families to conclude that there is little benefit to being inside of a classroom building, and that drives the opt-out rates much higher. Can you imagine? Okay, Timmy, get on the school bus, head to school. Okay, Mom, gonna go to school now. Don't forget your laptop. Okay, Mom, I've got my laptop. Okay, kids, you're in the classroom now. Go ahead and uh, log in. Mrs. Jones will be teaching from home today. So you're just going to sit in the classroom and hopefully not beat each other's asses. It is that ridiculous. Districts that offer remote learning next school year could contract the work out to standalone online schools, freeing their own teachers to return to buildings. But for many months, some education and children's health experts have warned about the social and academic consequences of extending remote learning in the United States. It's not acceptable that we have a two-tier education system where white kids go to school in person disproportionately and students of color disproportionately have to go to school online. That, according to Vladimir Kogan, a political scientist at Ohio State University. His research found that parents are more likely to feel hesitant about in-person learning if their children's schools have been closed for longer periods of time, which was most likely to be the case in the liberal-leaning urban districts that serve large numbers of non-white students. The hesitancy was caused less by a fear of coronavirus than by messaging from school districts about whether in-person learning was safe or desirable. Many governors, many mayors, many school boards, many superintendents are still debating whether families should continue to have any option of virtual learning. But February's survey of educators found that 68% expect their systems to offer an array of remote learning options even after the pandemic ends. As long as the option for remote school remains, direct outreach to families is the best way to lure schools back to traditional classrooms. In the Indianapolis public school system, 20% of students remain in fully remote learning situations. It's a smaller percentage than many other urban districts. That district made 1,000 home visits in over two days in April to check on Churin, who had been chronically absent during the pandemic trying to encourage them to return to in-person school learning. I wonder how much that costs. Mrs. Johnson? Mrs. Johnson? My name is Miss Eberhardt. I'm with the school district. Look at here. 
Lil Tyrone been out of school about 14 days over the last 15 days. Is he all right? He ain't be checking in online either. I ain't going to be able to give him no passing grade, no girl. Hello? You think you can start sending that boy back to school? Hello? Anybody home? Antoinette Austin is the district's social services coordinator, and she visited one boy who was living with an aunt. She did not speak English, and she did not know her nephew's school had reopened. Several other families needed help arranging transportation to get their children to school, Austin said. What about the big yellow school bus? You know, the big yellow school bus. Oh, you morons. Hybrid school schedules have also made it difficult for many families to commit to in-person learning during the Kung Flu. That was the case for Angela Kersey, who returned her 13-year-old son, Jonathan, to his Indianapolis school when it initially reopened in the winter. But she withdrew him when she found that her work schedule in housing maintenance could not accommodate the upheaval caused by the school's half-time hours and closures every time a case of the Wuhan Kung Fu flu was discovered. Speaking over Zoom, Kersey rubbed her temples as she recalled trying to keep her son, who has an attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, engaged with online learning. There was one especially difficult period when the two were sharing a single bedroom, were living with roommates. At times, the strain of acting as both a parent and a teacher caused so many fights that Kersey even gave up on virtual learning. I just had to surrender, she said. Oh, wah, oh, wah. Unwilling to return to that routine, she enrolled Jonathan in a five-day-a-week learning center at Brookside Community Church, where college students supervise remote school and sports for 14 churn. Jonathan's regular school is now open five days a week, but Kersey says she does not want to disrupt her son's new, wonderful routine. In New Orleans, Frederick A. Douglas High School, part of the National KIPP Charter School Network, first reopened for in-person learning back in October. It now offers students four days a week in the classroom. Even so, wooing students back has been a major challenge. After all, the thug minority kids in New Orleans who make up the majority of the population of that school, they're all out in the street. Riding stolen four-wheelers and motorcycles or carjacking adults. It's much more fun to do that than to sit in a classroom four days a week. But that place has been open four days a week since October, and it's been a major challenge to get kids to come back. In the fall, 50 to 75% of the school's 600 students were showing up each day, but more recently, only half were. 90% of the school's students are Blafrican American and come from low-income families. Tawana P.F. Floyd is the principal, and she have taken several steps to convince family to return. Maintaining upbeat on-campus events, like homecoming elections, showed students attending virtually what they were missing out on in the building. In addition, the school began issuing weekly progress reports for families with students' grades and assessment scores. A practice Ms. P.F. Floyd said she will continue even after the pandemic come to an end. Because most students were not as successful virtually, the report left families hungry for an option to be with their teachers, she said. Ms. Pierre Floyd envisions her entire student body back in person next school year, 
but she knows it will require a big adjustment. Some teenagers are providing childcare for younger siblings. Parents who lost jobs in the city's struggling tourism sector sometimes needed their children to work. She plans to hire an attendance coordinator and expand an early college program which will allow high school students to work towards a medical assistant certification or develop carpentry skills. She says she hopes those options will show the parents the economic utility of returning their churn to the building. A lot of families have built life structures around their COVID reality, she said. Now the challenge is to come out of crisis mode and let's think about the future again. Either way you look at it, folks, they have to make it about race. They have to make it about rich versus poor. That's the only way they keep everyone fighting against one another. Put your ass on the school bus. Go to school. Learn. Go home from school. Do your homework. That's the way it's been for two centuries, give or take. Why change now? Because supposedly it's racist and racism brings in donations. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Truth Hurts program, everybody. We'll see you next time. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Truth Hurts program. Opinions expressed are protected free speech under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We apologize if you are offended, but we retract nothing. Background music by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. Copyright 2021, the Truth Hurts Program Network. All rights reserved.